My name is Umer, and you're tuning into Oats for Breakfast, which is an eco-socialist podcast based in Toronto. This is a bonus episode of the podcast. We usually only publish two episodes every month, so this is an extra one. But it's also a different kind of episode for another reason. Usually our episodes feature interviews or discussions about a political or cultural issue. This episode, by contrast, is a more loosely structured conversation with a left-wing content creator. I speak with Henry, also known as Deathnography, about his interests in making political memes, his podcast, his music, as well as about the ethnographic research he did among Indonesian migrant workers in Hong Kong. If our listeners like this episode, we'd be happy to produce other bonus content of this kind. There's a growing ecology of leftists who are doing lots of great things online, whether that's through podcasting, writing, on YouTube, TikTok, and whatever else is the newest way to reach people. I think it's important for there to be some concrete links among the online left and hopefully this episode and others like it will help contribute to building some of those links. As always, a big shout out to our Patreon supporters. We wouldn't be able to make the Oats for Breakfast podcast without you. I don't really care how great a season Giannis Antetokounmpo has had this year. Our Patreon supporters are the real MVPs. And if you too would like to become the subject of an out of place Kevin Durant meme, please go to patreon.com forward slash oats for breakfast and sign up as a patron. And with that, let's cut to my discussion with Henry. Henry is a Marxist meme lord. He is also a musician, an anthropologist, and a podcaster. He does these things under the guise of an online persona known as deathnography. Welcome to Oats for Breakfast, Henry. Hello, Amir. Thank you for having me. All right. So I want to ask you about the various aspects of your online identity. And maybe we can also talk about your offline identity if that comes up. But uh, but let's start with the memes. So tell people where they can find your memes, first of all. And also, um, how did you get started? Well, I'm on uh, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. But I actually like I've I've kind of pivoted away from just making memes and uh, I don't even like I don't even know if I would like meme lord like that sort of like 2016 like funny terminology like that. The, I don't even know if many people would would kind of like fall into that category anymore. Like there are people who definitely still make memes and are passionate about it. But a lot of my friends who around the time of the beginning of deathnography were like sort of my peers, they're they're sort of pivoting towards other platforms, different formats. Like I've got friends who are like really into TikTok now. Um, other friends who like me have like started doing like audio stuff, podcasts, some who want to like, you know, make TV shows, that sort of thing. So um, yeah, I started it in 2016 and it was in the time between my undergraduate degree and uh, the beginning of the master's program I was going into at uh, the University of Toronto for anthropology. And I just kind of wanted a way to be connected with some sort of community in that little interim, but it continued and it branched off from there. And I found 
a lot of people in anthropology and outside of anthropology through through that endeavor. All right. So what was it? What what was the? Uh, it was a it was a Facebook page originally. Yeah. So I just started posting like funny funny images about like books I was reading and like it was because you know it was during the summer between two programs. So I was like, okay, I want to like kind of keep my brain going. I want to like still think about anthropology. I want to still have like debates with people. So I, I posted like little funny images about like politics and anthropology. And then I started getting like a following of people who were not like at the University of Toronto. Like I got a lot of American friends all of a sudden. And I started meeting. And whenever I went to an academic conference, I would meet not like everyone knew ethnography, but I would meet like one or two people at like every conference I've ever been to. I've met and, you know, became friends with like a few people who are like, oh yeah, I know your like Facebook page. Like that's kind of funny. And then I'm like, yeah, come to my panel. And then like, you know, I'll go to your panel. And then we, we start hanging out. And You're, as you said, you wanted to kind of remain uh, active as an anthropologist or have some kind of a community online. But, you know, making memes, posting funny photos, that kind of thing. And then the other part of it is that you are uh, often explicitly political. Yeah, I, I think it was maybe a reaction to like, this feeling in a lot of my classes that, I mean, maybe even a reaction to my own path in anthropology where I was like, okay, this is like a science. We're doing like sciencey stuff. This is sort of, this is when I was younger, um, that it doesn't really have anything to do with, not like, not that it's not political, but like that it wasn't, it wasn't something that I would necessarily have to deal with in like my everyday life. Or like, this is my anthropology thinking. And then this is my, you know, like, who do I like vote for in like a federal election thinking and like that sort of thing. And then there was like, you know, friends going to protests and stuff. And I never really like linked all these things together, really. And a lot of my peers didn't either. They were just like, okay, I'm an anthropology student. Like, my duty is to study anthropology. And after a while, I started to think about, you know, the connection between what I was studying and like, you know, the life and death sort of stakes of the real world, uh, which happened through um, an ethnography, like a, a fieldwork project that I was doing in my undergrad, where I went to Hong Kong and I was studying with uh, migrant workers there. So uh, migrant domestic workers from uh, Indonesia and the Philippines primarily. And when I was studying with them, I started to sort of like question my own place in the field as a researcher versus as like an activist. So I was like going to protests but like always carrying a microphone and being like, okay, I'm not here to protest. I'm here to like document something. But after a while I started to, you know, kind of get more involved. And I was thinking more along the lines of, you know, what is, what is actually important about a research project if it isn't bringing anything to the people to whom you're, you know, researching. So that was sort of the beginning of my, my, uh, I guess. Uh, Your politicization. I guess, yeah, my politicization and also my my sort of frustration with anthropology being detached from politics or like everyday life in a way that was actually important to like everyday people. And that's one of the things that you uh, asked me about. You sent me some questions mm -hmm. um, and one of them was about uh, the value of like ethnography in seeing the world in a more like nuanced way for people who are already politi politicized. So not just applying you know, like Marxist theories directly from a book onto reality without doing any investigation prior. So I think it like goes both ways that some people are, you know, political, but not observing things in a like, you know, I would say like anthropological way. And then there are people who are, you know, in anthropology who don't think of themselves as like, 
political at all, while obviously they do have a set of politics that they live by. I want to ask you about what your research was, but uh, I also want to point out that, you know, you, you said that you started this Facebook page and then you got some friends, some people started following you, but actually it's not just some people. You have a lot of followers at this point, I think 40,000 or something in, in that range. Yeah, it's in that, it's, yeah, it's like 40 something thousand on Facebook on Twitter, it, like on Twitter and Instagram, it's far fewer. On Instagram as well, like the the profile that I do have, that like at Deathnography, I keep it private, and that one's actually not really memes. This is where things sort of like got a little messy and like blended together for me. But that's more like just my personal account. So I mean, I've got my friends and my family on there, and they don't need, they don't necessarily want to be viewed by like forty thousand people, right? Um, like strangers on the internet. So I keep that private. And then I have like a separate deathnography memes page. But yeah, I really have pivoted more towards like the, I mean, I, I think most of my energy in the last year has been more towards like my podcast versus the the memes themselves. I, I don't really make that many memes at this point. All right. So um, you're, you studied anthropology at the University of Toronto? Yep. Yep. Okay. And the research project you mentioned that's uh, that took place in your master's? Uh, it t- took place in both. So I did um, a summer-long like research project in my undergraduate uh, pro- program. Um, so I got some funding. Like I won a small like bursary. It was a bursary uh, scholarship. Got some money from the school and uh, you know used it on a flight to get to Hong Kong where my family lives, stayed with my grandmother. I even like worked for my grand, my uh, godfather for a bit during that summer just to like get some extra funds, and um, yeah, I I studied with Indonesian migrant workers primarily. So I would go to Victoria Park, which is a large park in Hong Kong Island, and I basically knew zero people there, and I just started like hanging out with activist groups and like attending protest events and like interviewing people and just you know, doing all the things that I thought at the time an anthropologist does, taking notes, whatever. Like I tried like the participant observation side of things. So I was like, you know, I'm not just documenting. Like I was aware of that at the time, maybe not in like a political activist sort of way, but part of my research, like it led me to judging a battle of the bands for this like metal concert. So there are all these like metal and punk bands playing. And I was like, you know, I wasn't just observing. I was like scoring the, uh, the performances. I was like a guest judge. So I was like sitting there with like a pen and like listening to all these amazing performances and like scoring them out of 10 and whatever. And then like I met the winners afterwards and became friends with them, like that sort of thing. So uh, yeah, that was my, my project was about uh, social media. So I was like, at the time I was looking at how Indonesian migrant workers in Hong Kong who are just for structural reasons, quite atomized in the city. So for anyone who doesn't know, Hong Kong is like a very, very dense city state that, you know, has tons and tons of apartment buildings, condominium, like no one's living in like a two-story house, except for like super rich people. So migrant workers who are like caregivers in homes are then in these apartment buildings and like sort of visually separated from the rest of their peers. So if you are a migrant worker and you're working in an apartment, you're not necessarily like leaving the apartment all the time to see other migrant workers. Like you will maybe get groceries and like run into someone, but it's very different from you're sleeping at your employer's house. So it's very different from this sort of like older, 
you know, Marxist idea of like everyone in the factory and then, you know, afterwards, everyone's going back to a neighborhood after work. And then everyone in the neighborhood can kind of like discuss what's going on and organize and become politically engaged together. In this case, it was like everyone is separate for the vast majority of the week. And then on Sundays, which is the, it's usually someone's day off. It's like the day off, the one rest day of the week. Uh, on Sundays, people would go to this park where I was studying. And that's when a lot of the in-person activism would, was happening. But I, I was interested in those other six days of the week. I was like, how are people mobilizing online? How are people using like WhatsApp and Facebook and maybe Instagram to like sort of connect and form this political consciousness? So that was my, my research at the time. And I, I did find that it was like a very significant aspect of what was going on. Like people would coordinate all sorts of protest actions online. It's, it's basically like what we've seen here as well, like in North America. I mean, obviously, like social media is like taking this really prominent role in organizing generally. Um, so this is mostly uh, women? Uh, exclusively. Yeah, almost exclusively. And how is your Bahasa? Uh, it's not great. <laughs> But luckily, everyone's English in... Um, I mean, like this is like sort of the nature of the, the timeline for me, but like I didn't have time to learn Bahasa properly. And I was like, okay, well, I know that everyone in Hong Kong, despite like me having gone to Hong Kong throughout my childhood and whatever, I'm like, everyone in Hong Kong pretty much has like a working, has working English. So I was able to communicate with domestic workers in English. And so what were they, you know, fighting to improve better working conditions or? Yeah, better working conditions, but also like the trying to, trying to influence the laws which affect those working conditions. So a lot of it was like advocacy around things like the, there's something called the two week rule, where if a domestic worker in Hong Kong is fired, they have two weeks to find another, or like if their contract, yeah. So if they're, they're out of their old contract, they have two weeks to find another employer or else they're deported. And two weeks is like a way too short an amount of time because usually there's like all sorts of vetting processes. Like people want to be, you know, they go through agencies and they're like, you know, it's someone who might be taking care of an elderly person in your family or like your kid or whatever. So people, two weeks is a very, very short amount of time. And it's effectively like, if you get fired, you get deported is what it comes down to. So there's that, uh, there's groups that fight against exploitation by the employment agencies themselves, which often, uh, put migrant workers into like illegal debt that they then have to pay off. There's a, uh, there's confiscation of passports, all sorts of abuse that happens within these employment agencies. So there are many groups and they kind of form a larger coalition, but each one is like, each one of these groups is like, one of them is like against overcharging by the agencies. One of them's for, you know, like against the two week rule, that sort of thing. And then they all kind of come together because it is under the same banner of like, we're migrant workers uh, advocating for our rights. So what are the what are some of the expressions of their organizing? I guess you're saying they're protests and there was a music festival or, or something that you... Yeah. So music music really factors in heavily with this this organizing. Um, so one thing that I found during my, my undergraduate research, like just being like not speaking Bahasa myself, not being an experienced researcher. And there were other like way more experienced researchers in the field while I was there, like simultaneously, like I would bump into other anthropology like PhD students and stuff and I'd be like oh I'm like 20 years old like I don't know what the hell's going on like and you you know you've got published papers or whatever so at the time uh, it, like one of the ways that I've, I found myself like becoming more like into not integrated but like uh, involved with these groups 
was just through direct like participant observation. So I'm like, okay, I'm maybe not the best researcher yet. So I'm just going to participate in as many of these activities as I can. So people would do like park karaoke. And I was like, I like singing. So I would, I would sing like duets with people in the park and like people would be playing guitar and we'd be singing like uh, wrecking ball by Miley Cyrus. So just come out. So like I have a recording of that still, but I was like singing with someone who would become like one of my very good friends, uh, string who's a, a, a migrant leader in uh, Hong Kong. So she liked that song too. So we were like doing that one and like, I think say something it's like Christina Aguilera. So we were like just singing these pop songs, which are like sort of internationally known. And that was like kind of a way that we could like bond as, as people and friends. Uh, then I started getting interested in the protest music. So I, in my master's uh, program, that was the focus of my research. So I, I went back to Victoria park. I went back to Hong Kong. And uh, this time I was like looking at uh, music that was written by migrant workers for activist purposes. So protest songs, um, what I found were like a lot of like remixes of, or like, I would call them like remixes, but like, uh, like cha- lyric alterations of uh, other protest songs. So like Solidarity Forever, there was like, uh, they would had just taken like Solidarity Forever, like that, like, and then it's like, at the end, it's like, they changed the lyrics to we'll fight until we win, which is like one of their slogans, uh, one of the like migrant worker slogans of uh, Hong Kong. So just like little things like that. But it was like sort of an internationally, you know, like solidarity forever, like every leftist in the world knows that tune, probably like most non leftists as well. So they were able to like, they were, they were able to make like internationally sort of like recognizable tunes because they knew that Hong Kong is kind of a, uh, it's a cosmopolitan, like international city and a lot of the protests are witnessed by people who aren't, you know, Indonesian or from Hong Kong. So yeah, I was, uh, that was what I was interested in. So what were your findings? Um, so it was like, it was only like a little bit of field work at the end of my master's. So I don't think I had really like significant revelations aside from the fact that this like exists in the way that it does. And I don't think any other like researchers were looking into music as sort of the music in this field site. So a lot of my, my research was more, it was more just like ethnographic data. It wasn't like I was coming up with like a really like profound argument about the music of migrant workers. It was more just like documentation, classifying like different types of music that were being made, uh, that sort of thing. So I found like, for instance, in the, the battle of the bands where I was judging, like a lot of the metal groups were sort of approaching things from like less of a like sing-along sort of protest song style, but were, you know, taking this very like universally also like to any metalhead in the world, like this aggression, you know, expression of pain uh, and and letting that out in their music as well, which was like, you know, explicitly political, but also like metal. Yeah, that was the sort of stuff I was finding. Okay, so we actually haven't um, really said anything about anthropology as such and and maybe not everyone knows what that is and you know we also you've talked about like ethnographic research yeah uh so maybe we can sort of define these things a little bit sure um so anthropology uh like study of study of humankind um the type of anthropology that i was studying is cultural anthropology so at least in north america you'll see archaeology, biological anthropology, cultural anthropology, and uh, linguistic anthropology. They call this like the four fields. I, I think at some point it was actually like an approach, like you're supposed to master the four fields or something. But 
at this point, it's like these are the these are the four types of anthropology in North America. In Europe, it's not the same. Like archaeology is sometimes separate from anthropology. Like it'll be like different departments or whatever, which I think kind of makes sense, at least from like my understanding of other fields. Like it would be more helpful to me, for instance, to like work with uh, human geographers or something versus archaeologists just for the stuff that I'm studying. But yeah, so anthropology is just the study of humankind as broad as that is. And cultural anthropology is sort of like seeking to understand living cultures as opposed to archaeology, which is seeking to understand, you know, ones that aren't so alive necessarily. Ethnography is just to like start from what the word means. So it means like writing about the people, the root of the word. It's, it's a research approach where you go and an easy way for someone who's not in anthropology to understand. Maybe it's like, it's, it's sort of like investigative journalism, although I know a lot of people like kind of not like the comparison, but it's you're going into a culture or a group or a society or wherever, and you are doing participant observation. You are, uh, you are not just observing people, but you're interacting with people, interviewing people, although that's not also necessarily true. Some, pe- some ethnographers don't actually interview anyone. Oh, really? Yep. Yeah, there is some uh, anthropologists who just rely on like participant observation and don't do like one-on-one interviews and you're basically documenting analyzing and then you go from like this is the old formulation but you go from the field where you're doing your field work back to the university the desk and you look at all the things that you've found and you try to understand the meaning of what you've observed you try to document it and then you try to write a book that like 10 people will read Right. And obviously, anthropology has changed quite a lot. I think most people, including myself, when I hear the word anthropology, I think of, uh, you know, like Margaret Mead. Yeah, like the early 20th century stuff. Yeah, where really what's being studied is often primitive societies. I, I don't know if the word primitive is, and we're supposed to use that anymore. But uh, yeah, it's been sort of problematized uh, non-industrial societies like is generally yeah. yeah yeah but anyway um the point being that that's not what anthropology is yeah not necessarily like yeah because what your own research obviously is not uh you know you didn't go to some remote remote corner of madagascar where you studied uh some tribal peoples yeah i think that probably is one of the big changes that's from my understanding of like the the genealogy within anthropology or like how the trends of how how people go about seeing the world and like researching the world there's been a move away from i guess this like more colonial way of seeing things where it's like okay uh rich and advanced white guy goes and studies primitive not white people and then writes a book called like you'd see this a lot back in the day but it'd be like there's like one book like the Nur. Like that's the name of the tribe or like the, and then the name of the tribe. And like, that's the book. And it's like, we've written, we've created a a summary of this peoples. Um, It it can exist in a vacuum. It's not about like how these people are, are like connected to the rest of the global economy or anything like that. It's just like, we found this like primitive tribe of people. And this is like, this is the summation of them as a, as a very simple kind of society. Uh, these are the things that they believe. Right, a self-contained culture. Yeah, exactly, yeah. But, well, so I guess what I'm trying to understand, I mean, in your ethnographic work, you would define the 
domestic laborers or domestic workers in Hong Kong as forming something like a culture or a, or a subculture that you're studying. Yeah, but I mean, even I mean, like I, I would even be hesitant to say it was like just one one culture or like one it, it definitely wasn't like one uniform sort of like these are all the domestic workers in Hong Kong like these are the things that all domestic like there are domestic workers in Hong Kong who are not activists like I would venture a guess that most probably are not going to the protest I mean there are hundreds of thousands of domestic workers in Hong Kong and uh, I would see like a lot of familiar faces at the protests I was going to like you know the same several like hundred maybe like you know there'd be a thousands of people at some of them but it was never like i never went to a protest that was like a hundred thousand people and there's hundreds of thousands of domestic workers working in hong kong currently i think what i got was a snapshot of like just the activist sort of community of uh, indonesian migrant workers in hong kong and again there are like differences between obviously like indonesian migrant workers are doing different activism than filipina migrant workers who are different doing different activism than like migrant workers from uh like sri lanka or so yeah there there are there there these things are never monolithic and i guess that's one of the revelations or not revelations but like <laughs> basic realizations that like anthropologists and like other social scientists have probably had over the last like 150 years or whatever but i i think maybe it does come out more in studying like non in or sorry studying people in like an industrial society versus like studying people in a non-industrial society. Right. Well, but, you know, studying non-industrial societies as anthropologists used to do and still, many of them still do this, I find that research, including the research on the newer, to be fascinating. You know, I, I, oftentimes it's it can be problematic and there's obviously features of it that are, you know, the older stuff is, uh, is sometimes kind of wacky. Yeah. Uh, some, sometimes the women aren't there. And you're just like, wait, where? Yeah, <laughs> where yeah. are the women in this society? Because, well, that's because the the male anthropologist didn't yeah uh, care. <laughs> uh, yeah, but what I, I've certainly gotten a lot out of the little bit of anthropology that I've read, and crucially, you know, it's really helped me to come to terms with the idea that non-capitalist societies can exist. Yeah, yeah, because it's hard to imagine that just because that this is all I've known. From the outside, looking into anthropology, you know, I, I just think like, okay, so this is clearly this field must be, you know, full of people who understand that the present way of living is not necessarily natural. Uh, you know, like I, I'm a political scientist. A lot of times political scientists, they don't start with this idea that actually different kinds of societies exist. They, they know in capitalism and then they imagine capitalism even where it doesn't exist. So, well, it, it's, but I, I, yeah, I, I sorry, go on. Create, like there's a, a one thing. So there, there's the realization that other types of human societies do exist, that this is not the only possible society. But once that is established, there is still this, you know, like, and I've frequently heard this in my own discussions of people who are, you know, not anti-capitalist or just like random friends, family, whoever. Well, they'll be like, okay, so other ways of existing are there but this surely must be the best one. So there's that second hurdle. And I, I think I think a lot of anthropologists probably, I mean, like people who I knew in anthropology probably believe this as well. Like they probably wouldn't want to go and decide to like stop living in this industrialized society and then go live in a non-industrial society. 
but I don't think that's necessarily like, you know, what we're looking for as, you know, leftists is like deindustrialization entirely or something. Like I know some people are, but uh, so David Graeber, who is like kind of a big influence for me in my political education, who is like probably the most famous living anthropologist at this point. He's like the most public intellectually type guy um, <laughs> alive and writing and like, you know, involved with like Occupy and whatever. Um, but he wrote this small book called Fragments of an Anarchist Anthropology. It's like more like an essay, but I bought it in like this little book format, like some, you know, like some lefty sort of bookshop in Seattle. And uh, when I got into that, that, his whole thesis in that was just like, okay, there are other ways of living and there are other ways of like being that are not, that are not capitalists, that are not like, you know, living under a state even. And I was like, holy shit, this is like, you know, I kind of knew this, but he was kind of just driving this point home that that's like what you said. Um, it should be this like really fundamental understanding of anthropology. And he was arguing as well that anthropology is like the best social science from which to like view this, this fact, like that, that anthropologists are like uniquely sort of situated um, in knowing about all these different types of societies to be like, okay, hey, wait, there are other possibilities. Like there are other ways of being. And maybe there are actually some that are like more democratic than what we call democracy. Like that's one of the things that he wrote about in this essay. He says, do you really think that democracy was invented in like ancient Greece? Because that's sort of the story that we're told in in school. And that maybe is sort of like a, I don't know if it's like actually like if political scientists believe this, but like sort of it's, you know, common sense at this point, like, oh, and we believe it. <laughs> okay. In Athens, they invented democracy. And he's like, well, do you really think that before ancient Athens, which is like still in like that, again, once you're an anthropologist and you're looking at that, like 200,000 year time scale of like homo sapiens, you can start to sort of break out of this idea that things right now are absolutely the way that they've always been because you're just like, okay, it's factually untrue. And it's like, okay, Athens, what, like 2000 years ago, whatever. Is that really the first time that people decided to you know, share, <laughs> uh, like come to decisions together in a, in a, like in a group forum. Like, is that really the first time that happened? And you start to be like, okay, wait, no, there are probably other like situations and there are other ways of going about doing like uh, a vote for instance, or like coming to like decision-making via consensus versus like majoritarian democracy. And he, he kind of breaks all this down and in, in a way that really uh, blew my 20 year old mind. So yeah, that was uh, that was big for me. One moment, I just need to plug in my laptop. It's about to die. For sure, yeah. Hey. Okay, so let's go to your podcasting. You have a podcast that you started around the same time, I think, that uh, Oats for Breakfast started. I think you you definitely have a lot more episodes than me. I only have like six out, and that's in like a year and a half. So it's just me making it. And um, I, I really do try to like edit very thoroughly. It's like a, a more um, like curated experience than a lot of other podcasts. That's not to say that I don't like something like this, which is more of like a loose conversation format. But I, I kind of grew up listening to like This American Life type stuff. And I was like, I always liked that NPR kind of flavor of doing things. I was like, okay, I like how it's like got a narrative arc to it. And it's, you know, more of like a little story session or, you know, um, I wanted things to be a little, a little more curated. So I, 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 like a lot of my interviews are, 
you know, edit it down from say like over an hour to maybe like 20 minutes. Like I'll just take like the really important points and I like, I really will chop out things and I'll, I'll switch around. Uh, like it's not necessarily linear. Like sometimes I'll have, you know, something that you said at the 45 minute mark will be uh, swapped. Like the, it'll be in a reverse order from something that you said at the 10 minute mark. That's not to say I'm like trying to like chop up people's words and like misrepresent what they're saying. But if you have a really good point, at the 10 minute mark and the 45 minute mark that's like thematically linked. And in between there's a bunch of other stuff that's like not maybe so relevant to what that point was. I'll combine those points. Like I'll try to make it one thing. And something that I do as well, it's just that everyone's happy with the final product is I let everyone listen to the podcast before I release it, who was involved. So a way of getting past that, like, I don't want anyone listening to it and being like, wait, you cut out the, no, like you're listening to it beforehand. Everyone's happy. And uh, then then it's released. So actually, I only came to know about you from your podcast. Okay. That's maybe a bit weird. No, it's, I don't know. That's, that's sort of like what I'm, I'm focused more on now. But I mean, in this past year, I've only like in 2020, I've only released like one episode. I noticed that you don't release episodes that frequently. And I also noticed that your, your podcast episodes are much more involved. There's a narrative element. There's like music there's you know multiple interviews and you're obviously like going for a much more layered kind of approach uh and i wanted to ask about that like the technical aspects of what goes into that yeah and you've said that you you know it's partly it's influenced from the your, your npr listening i was thinking it may be that you're a musician and you have this kind of layered conception of how you yeah. build a track well, right I'm, I'm, yeah i'm definitely thinking of it in that way as well like i i use the same software to make my podcast that i do to make my music right um and all the music on the podcast is, aside from like a few parts are like my like music that i've composed usually for the podcast so i'll, I'll you know in some of them it's like me playing piano and some of them it's like electronic tracks that i've made or like ambient stuff and then i'm using like audio techniques that i've learned through music production to try to make it mesh with the uh, the rest of the audio, like the part that kind of matters, which is the the talking, the the dialogue, right? But which is also done quite well. Well, thank you. Yeah, yeah. I was really impressed when I first came across your podcast, and it was when you'd first put out your first uh, episode, and I was just like, man, there is so much in here because this was the same time that I was starting to edit Oats for Breakfast. And, you know, we were thinking about, okay, how are we going to do this? Like, what's the format going to be like? Are we going to have one interview? Are we going to have multiple interviews? Is it going to be just discussions? Because sometimes we just do discussions among the hosts. And I came across your podcast and I was like, well, this is fantastic, but this is not what we're going to do because... <laughs> it takes a lot of time to do... Yeah, it'll take three months to make an episode. Yeah, which is what it has happened, yeah. Yeah, Um but what I really liked, just to bring the anthropology stuff back in, is that you, in your first episode uh, especially, but you've done this in other ones, but your first episode was, you know, ethnographic field notes from you working odd jobs in Montreal, you know, interlaid with interviews with your anthropologist friends about what the meaning of, of working odd jobs <laughs> is. Yeah. <laughs> I think, again, it's just sort of, I mean, it's it's like a mix between the radio that I was listening to growing up. So it wasn't it wasn't just like NPR, but like a lot of CBC shows. I liked uh, like ideas on CBC. I would listen to that on the radio as a kid. 
wiretap, which is like a humor uh, radio show. And then, you know, they put it up as like a podcast in the early days of podcasting uh, with Jonathan Goldstein, who is a, uh, a Montreal, I guess you'd call him like a humorist and writer. He now uh, does, he's with like Gimlet Media and he does something called Heavyweight, which is also like a super good podcast. Um, but yeah, like a lot of these, a lot of these radio shows that I was listening to had narrative structure and vignettes and like little humorous essays and like people being kind of, you know, sarcastic and inter- like funny interviews and that sort of thing. And I, I really enjoyed that. And I think I've always wanted to do that. I mean, like, especially as like someone who, you know, like I'm not afraid to put myself out there in an, in that medium. Like I, I already make music. I already sing. And I mean, through anthropology, like I'm, I'm constantly talking, I'm constantly like thinking about politics, thinking about anthropology, whatever. Uh, so it was like a mix between that and, I, I mean, the vignettes, it tied in perfectly with what I was studying. I was like, this is what I learned how to do, is like do uh, interesting anecdotal vignette type things and like write them up as like little fun stories. And like, I've always loved doing that and I've always loved sharing that with people. And now also I've got this amazing roster of like friends and, you know, peers and anthropology who are like, who love reading vignettes and like as you said, like trying to decipher, discern the meaning of the vignettes. So I'm like, well, this this comes together perfectly. I'll just put it all together. And so in your first episode, um, you, you kind of go through your experience working at one of the, one of the things you did is you worked at a, a vegetable market. Yeah. And a lot of what you're sharing in that is your interactions with other workers. And they're often, you know, they're working class guys, most of them, a lot of them are quite coarse, you know, they make, they'll make sexist remarks, they'll, they'll use racial or, or racist epithets at times. And not, this isn't the only kind of observations you make, but you're honest about what they're like. Um, but then you don't go out of your way to conclude that these guys are just irredeemably bad people. No, I don't. And I don't think that either. I mean, like I tried to maybe to a greater extent than I would just like in my everyday life in my field notes, I would try to approach things from like a more relativist point of view, or I'm trying very hard, not like I'm trying consciously not to be judgmental and not just be like, okay, I'm going to write this guy off. Whereas in like my everyday life, like there were times where I was like, okay, this guy's a, this guy's an asshole. Like I don't want to talk to him anymore. Like he's just a jerk. But when I'm thinking about it from like a more anthropology anthropological point of view and I'm, I'm trying to discern the meanings of things i'm like okay i want to look at these conversations i want to like see what's going on i want to know like why this guy is saying these types of things and something that you pointed out too like it's interesting and like i think karsten one of my friends who i interviewed pointed this out it's like there's this weird interplay between like okay there's like racist jokes and then also he's like trying ha- quite hard to be my friend like he wants to he wants to like give me gifts he's like giving me uh, like sandwiches and like he's giving me champagne in the middle of a work day. And I'm like, okay. So like, you know, it, it became more complicated than this guy's just like purely an asshole. Like this guy was like trying to make my life easier, but also saying some really horrific stuff. So yeah, it, it thinking about things anthropologically does like lead you more. And I was saying this earlier, it's like it doing ethnography, uh, doing field notes. It puts you in a space where the, the world seems more complicated Whereas most social sciences like sociology and economics, they're trying to seek to like simplify or create generalizations or create useful theories. And these are all like really good things. And like anthropology directly benefits from such theories. But that's different than the project that a lot of ethnographers are trying to carry out. 
where you're trying to actually find particularities and you're trying to find the the, the messiness. You're you're really getting into the messiness of uh, everyday life. Right. And well, so let's concretize some of this messiness because I think we know what we're talking about, but uh, some of the listeners who haven't heard your podcast won't. Just the the example of the, the person who, who would say uh, sometimes racist things. So this person would use words like, uh, you know, chink, for example. Yeah. Yeah. He would say that all the time and he would like refer to me like that. And I like, you know, I'd I'd talk to him sternly about it. I'm like, you can't say that. And he's just like, what, man? And I'm just like, it's a bad word. He's like, no, it's not. You just kind of like brush me off. So yeah, like he he definitely did do that. He definitely said some very sexist things, like said some really horrible stuff. But in his like actual everyday interactions with people, it didn't come across. Like there was this weird, um, it's like he saw the th- he saw those terms as like genuinely in his mind, he thought they weren't that bad which was interesting to me. And I mean, also like part of the messiness too is like, okay, this guy was like a working class guy. Sure. He was also like brother-in-law with the boss. So it's like, okay, so it's a family business. So you're all kind of, you know, there's the messiness of that. So, I mean, this guy, he's part of the family. Like he's, he doesn't need to unionize. Like there's no, you know what I mean? Like there's no, uh, he's not alienated necessarily from all aspects of his labor. Um, I wanted to ask a a little bit about your music what how does that sort of interface with your online persona podcasting uh and and previously i guess memeing that you did well i mean i i have done some like political music um so i i released a song and uh music video called be the one uh last fall and the the music video is super political it's about someone um trying to pass down a torch of a like a leftist philosophy to their to his daughter and her um, trying to understand her, her father's path and politicization as as a youth so I mean I, I I did there is some crossover there like there is some political stuff that happens in my music so I, I think that I do see music and most art as like a political project and I think it is sort of inescapable once you become politicized to like you know, your art is going to reflect that as well. Thanks for tuning in to this bonus episode of Oats for Breakfast. You can follow Henry on Facebook and Twitter by looking up at Deathnography. And be sure to also check out his podcast, which is called The Deathnography Podcast. Let us know what you think about this episode and whether we should make more bonus content like this by writing to contact at oatspodcast.com. You can write to us for any other reason as well. We always appreciate feedback. Finally, remember that you can support the Oats Podcast by going to patreon.com forward slash oats for breakfast. Thanks again for tuning in and we'll see you again soon.